The scripture for today is one verse, Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and kinsfolk are born to share adversity. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. be seated. In 1938, in response to the Great Depression, Harvard University selected 238 sophomores to study what goes into an abundant life, what goes into a joy-filled, fulfilled life. And in 2017, 19 of them were still alive. And that makes this the longest running study that anyone's aware of on human lifetimes of joy and fulfillment and abundance and things like that. Now, it's limited because in 1938, Harvard was an all-boys school, and it was an all-white school, and so there's certainly, we don't have the diversity that, that you would like to see, but nonetheless, you have 80-plus years of research very closely kept with, with these bunch of guys. Later on throughout the years, they did add their wives, and then they began adding children, and they had some interesting findings. When, when they started in the beginning, they measured things like cranium size and stuff because that's what they thought would be important, right? They measured IQ. They measured their physical fitness. They, they interviewed their families to see where they came from, you know, good stock, that kind of stuff. Turns out that's not what goes into an abundant life. The thing that they found that was the single most important thing is your relationships. The relationships that you have with those that you love and those that love you. I pulled a couple of quotes from Robert uh, Waldinger who is the most recent director of this study. They've gone through four studies as you can imagine or four directors I should say in this one study. The people who were most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Like, chew on that for just a minute. It goes further, though. They spoke about loneliness, and he said, loneliness kills. It is as powerful as smoking or alcoholism. So for the last month, we have been going through a series looking at what goes into an abundant life, right? We've titled it Flourish, and looking at the scriptures and the science that back it up about what goes into a well-lived life, a life worth living. And today we want to talk about relationships and positive relationships. We've been using kind of as a foundational book, Martin Seligman's book, Flourish, and he offers five different big buckets or categories that you might say go into an abundant life. We've already talked about joy. We've already talked about meaning and purpose in your life. And today we talk about relationships. 
And it's hard to do that without talking a little bit about loneliness, especially when you read a quote like we just read. I've got a map here or a series of three maps and it's really difficult to see from this far away, but I wanted it all on one screen so that you could see. Essentially what it shows is that in 1940, most of the country, in most of the country, less than 15% of the population lived alone. In 2000, that number's over 25%. Just so that we can see over time, people live alone more and more. And I think there's several reasons for that. First of all, we live in a culture that very much values this rugged individualism, right? We pull into our garages, we shut the garage doors, we go into the living room, we don't sit out on the porch and talk to our neighbors, you know what I mean? We, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, you know what I mean? Like we love the image of the Marlboro man riding off into the sunset, the lone cowboy doing it on his own, all by himself, going out to rescue the world or whatever. And so we don't value living together in community. And maybe as we've grown a little more wealthy, we don't have to quite as much. And so we end up more and more, as it turns out, being alone, which I was surprised to see over and over in lots of different research this week, how concerning that can be just to your health, not to mention your joy and your well-being, right? Just your physical health. So, I thought maybe today we would address that, because the question obviously is, what, what do we do with that? What would Scripture say that we should do? What would science say that we should do? How can we, if we are in a position where maybe, maybe someone here has been recently widowed or divorced, or maybe, maybe you have, your last kids have just moved out of the house and you're recently an empty nester, I have an 18-year-old, and I cannot wait for him to get... He's not here today, so I can talk about him. The two that I love most are in church today. The 18-year-old can get right out. No, I'm just kidding. You know what I mean, though. So we find ourselves often, due to circumstances outside of our control, we find ourselves alone. And that's not the same as lonely, but we find ourselves often lonely. What do we do with that? The first thing I want to say is that loneliness is not a moral category. It's not a moral failure. It's not even a category that we should talk about in terms of morality. But I think we think it is. Because I think we look at the Marlboro Man riding off into the sunset and we place our value there. And if I don't feel that way, then there must be something wrong with me. If I'm lonely, then maybe I'm not worthy of having friends, right? We start, so this becomes a cycle. We become lonely and then we blame ourselves. And then, and I read this so many times this week, when you go looking for something, you'll find it. And so if you are lonely, you are going to look for triggers and fears and things like that. You go into a fight or flight mode and guess what? You will start seeing it. You will hear someone whispering and they're not talking about you at all, but you will wonder if they are. And that becomes a cycle of depression, which adds to more loneliness, right? So if we can separate that and realize that loneliness is not a moral category, then maybe we can step away from it. One of the researchers I watched a YouTube on this week, and I'm going to quote him here in just a little bit. His name is uh, John Cacciapo, and I'll, maybe I'll share the link to, the, to his TED Talk um, 
in the uh, Facebook feed this afternoon. It's worth reading. It's only 18, I mean, it's worth watching. It's only 18 minutes and it's absolutely incredible. But he says, we should think of loneliness not in terms of a moral failure, but in terms of a physiological trigger to cause us to act. And here's two examples. When you are hungry, it causes you to go get something to eat, right? Our bodies become hungry when our blood sugar gets low, when we haven't eaten in a little while. If your body didn't experience hunger, you might forget to eat, and that would affect the survival of the species, I'm guessing, right? So hunger is a physiological you know, trigger that causes a response to help us live better lives, right? You get hungry, you go eat. Another one is pain. Say you reach out and you touch something hot your immediate reaction is gonna to be to jerk it back. If you didn't have that reaction, you would damage your skin. True story, I had a Boy Scout director when I was in Boy Scouts who, and I don't know if this is true or not because Boy Scout leaders love to you know, play pranks and gags and stuff like that, but he convinced us that he didn't have feeling in his right hand. And the way he would do that is like he would reach in the pot of beans while they're on the fire and stir them. Now, my suspicion is that he would do it before they really got hot or something like that. Of course, we didn't try. Of, you know, I'm imagining that you can only do that gag a few times before you turn your fingers into, you know, like pot roast or something like that. It's probably not very healthy. The point is, the pain is a physiological response designed in your body to encourage you to do something different. And so is loneliness. And if we looked at it that way, instead of thinking we must have something wrong with us, instead of it being some kind of moral failure, then perhaps it would encourage us to go out and do the things that would grow our social network. The second thing I would say is this, it's quality over quantity. We all know that as we age, the sphere of friends that we have, probably because the sphere of people that we want to be friends with, it gets smaller, doesn't it? And that's a healthy thing, that's not an unhealthy thing, that's something that happens. And so it comes down to, um, choosing who we spend time with and how. One of the things that I thought we might do today is look at Jesus and the different spheres of people that he spent time with and how he related to them and how he related to them differently based on who he was with. And I'm going to use Professor Cacciapo's uh, different categories here. He gives us three categories that I think lay out very well with the scriptures. And the first one is the innermost sphere, it's the intimate group. These are your ride or dies, right? These are the people that you are going to call in the middle of the night and they are going to be there for you. You probably share an address with them. You probably share blood type with them or a last name with them. These are your friends and family, maybe your roommate if, you, if you're still close with a roommate from college. These are the, if you're thinking about more than three people, then this is not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about a very small number of people. If you're married, I hope it's your spouse. If you have kids or parents, maybe them. You know what I mean? This is a very small group. If you have brothers or sisters, maybe them. These are the ones that you are most intimate with. They are the ones that know you. They know all of your flaws. They have seen you when no one else sees you, you know, at the end of the day when you kick back and relax and you're the person that you don't have to put up a, a mask for for anyone else. These are the people who know that. 
For Jesus, it was Peter, James, and John. And we know that Jesus spent a little bit more time with Peter, James, and John, and I've never really looked, I think, closely at what made his interactions with them different. But a few things that he did with them that he did not do with everyone else that are worth pointing out. One is the transfiguration. And you've heard the transfiguration preached before, and there's so much more than I want to say about it that I could say about it now. But if we reduce it for just a minute to Jesus with three people, and he divulged his innermost self to them. He, he opened up his, his heart bare and naked for them to see who he was. No one else saw that. No one else saw him transfigured. The Greek is metamorphosized or whatever. It's, it's he was changed. He was transformed in front of them. They saw him for who he was. No one else saw that. That's who this is in your life. The people who know you for who you are. Not, not the character that you play at work not the character that you play at church or at your you know, PTA meetings or, or wherever else you go. This is the person that you are when no one else is watching, and these are the people who know who that person is. The other thing that's worth pointing out that Jesus did with Peter, James, and John is when he needed something that he didn't want to talk about with everyone else, he called on them. And I'm thinking about Gethsemane. Jesus went to pray a prayer because he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Anyone ever been there before? <laughs> right? If no one in this room has ever prayed, God, leave me alone, right? We always pray, God, you know, Holy Spirit, come. But if you've never prayed, Holy Spirit, get out, then you might not understand this scripture. That's what Jesus prayed, though, in Gethsemane. And when he wanted to pray that prayer, right, the kind of prayer that you don't ask for prayer requests at at church, that prayer, Peter, James, and John is who he went to. And he called them to come and pray with him. And now y'all know the rest of the story. They fell asleep because they're knuckleheads just like you and I are. And he got pretty frustrated with that. But those are the people that I'm talking about in your life, the people that know you for who you are, and that you can call on when you have a prayer request that you don't want the rest of the church to know about. Does that make sense? These are your most intimate circle. The, the uh, advice that I would give that I've researched on how to be tight with that inner circle is some that was given to me a long time ago when it was, the context was looking for who, who to marry, right? And you've probably heard this before. It's not about finding the right person as much as it is about being the right person, right? And so if you want to have those people who will be beside you when you need to pray a tough prayer, who know who you are, then you have to be that someone to someone else. Now let me pause right here. In order to be that person, then you have to know yourself. And in today's sermon, I'm talking about relationships that we have with other people, although it would be worth one day having another sermon on the relationship that you have with yourself. And we, I assume, will have lots of sermons on the relationship that you have with your Savior. So that's, I hope that that goes unsaid. But in order to be the kind of person, to be the friend that you need to be for others, 
you have to have those two things taken care of. You have to know yourself. You have to know your Savior. And the better you know them, the better friend you can be. That brings to the next sphere. And that is what I would just say, friendships, right? These are, the, these are the people that you want to hang out with. This is your Sunday school class. This is your rugby team. This is, anyone play rugby? Neither do I. I don't know why that came out. These are, the, these are the people that you hang out with on the side. You know what I'm talking about? For Jesus, it was the 12. So Jesus had the 12 apostles. And I love, I think this needs to be said because Matthew and Luke always include them. They would always say, and the women, Right? Because there was a handful of women that were traveling around with them too. It wasn't just the 12 apostles that get their names read in Luke. There was the women with them as well. And one of my favorite stories about the women is that Luke names four of them in one of, in one of the places in the story. And he makes a point to say that these women were traveling with them. And do you remember why? It was so that they could pay the bills. In fact, it, like it says that in, in one of the women was married to Herod's property manager. So indirectly, Herod, who wanted Jesus killed, was indirectly funding Jesus' ministry and work. Isn't that amazing? Like, I love this story. But isn't it just like a group of guys and girls? Like, the guys are out front doing all the talking and having all the fun, and the girls are coming up behind, cleaning up, paying the bills, handling the details. Am I getting to? Okay, well, that's what happens in Luke is all I'm saying. And I love this because we see that Jesus is surrounded not just by his closest, closest friends, not just the intimate people, but the people that he was just around all the time. And so the question is, what did they do? Well, first of all, they were always eating together, right? They were always sharing a meal. They were, all, they were always traveling together. And you, you wouldn't call it this, but it was adventures. They were always going on adventures, right? If you followed Jesus, it was not boring. They were going to be going somewhere. They were going to be doing something. They were going to be eating. They were probably laughing and telling jokes and stories and things like that. Don't you wish you knew the side conversations that happened after the two of them were like, hey, could you make us number one and two? You know, once you come into your kingdom, boss, how about we get to sit at your right and left hand? Don't you wish that you heard the conversations that the other 10 disciples had at that point, you know? You know they got nicknames like one and two from that point on. So here's what I would say about that with regard to us. And that is that we have to be intentional. Have to be intentional and we have to share good times together. I want to show you all a graph. This is a graph of who you spend time with as we get older. I know it's really difficult to see, but you can kind of tell a couple of those lines. First of all, the one that ends up the highest on the right, on your right, is your alone time. As we get older, we spend more and more time alone. That makes sense. Some of the things that happen there in the middle are worth pointing out. Uh, when you have, you know, how much time you spend with your children, obviously peaks around 30 until like 50. And so it's basically that window of time that they're home. Uh, the time that you spend with your co-workers basically plateaus from around 25 till around 65, right? That would make sense, and then it drops off. The one line that starts higher than your alone time is the time you spend with your parents, and that makes sense because when you're a little child, you, you're dependent on your parents, and so that drops off pretty quickly once you graduate high school. The point is, all of those numbers except your alone time go down at the end. And so the only way to combat that 
is to be intentional. You know what happens if you're not intentional to call your friends up and invite them out for dinner? Nothing. Nothing happens. And you don't go out to dinner. And you don't share that meal. And you don't share that adventure. And so in order to, like, keep those relationships, you have to be forced to keep those relationships. Those numbers in the middle are high in some of those areas like the time you spend with your coworker because you're forced to go to work, right? When you're a parent, you're forced to take care of your kids. I know, it's a burden. When you're a child, you're forced to live with your parents. I know, kids, it's a burden. The point is, there are times in our lives when we are forced to be with, you know, you're forced to spend time with your classmates when you're in school. It's just going to happen. But when you get a little bit older and you have some more autonomy about how you spend your time, those things go away. The outside factors that make us spend time together go away. You have to do it on your own. You have to be intentional to share good times with your friends. And that brings me to the last circle. And this is what Cacciapo calls the collective. For Jesus, I would say it was the 72 that he sent out. It was the crowds. Constantly, we're told, we have this unnamed mass of people that were following Jesus around from town to town. He would get in a boat to get away from them, and there they would be on the other side of the lake. You know what I mean? But if you notice the words, the verbs specifically, that are used to describe how Jesus interacted with the crowds are things like he saw them. One of the books that I'm reading right now that I've pulled a little bit of this research from said that about the worst thing you can do to a person isn't hurt them, it's ignore them. Jesus saw the crowds. And then it says he had compassion on them, right? He saw them and he saw their needs. I'm thinking about the story of the 4,000 or the 5,000. When the disciples looked out and saw the 5,000 hungry people, they saw a chore, right? They saw work. They saw anything but what Jesus saw. Jesus saw a hungry crowd, right? So Jesus saw them. He had compassion on them. I think this is huge. Cacioppo's point here that we should do is to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. And this is where I kind of think this sermon all kind of comes to a head, and and, and it's this. Friends, is there a, a better institution in our culture today than the church to address this issue? I, I mean, if so, I don't know of one. But if we are in a world that is growing lonelier and lonelier, and all of those graphs and statistics, by the way, were taken pre-COVID, I can only imagine that all of those numbers are worse post-COVID. And so we are in a world where there are probably people in here, and there are certainly people out there who are lonely and who are struggling and who don't have people checking in on them and who don't have loved ones caring for them and asking them to go grab coffee and things like that. And I don't know that there is a better structure already set up and in place right on Highway 119 in Alabaster than the church to address this issue. There are two things that I want to pull from Scripture that I think really help address this. The first is the Hebrew phrase, Selem Elohim. This is a phrase you will not recognize 
If I used the Latin, you would recognize it, and I have slowly been trying to wean myself off of the Latin, and I'll tell you why. The Latin phrase for this is Imago Dei. This is in the very first page of your Bible. We are all made in the image of God, right? I heard a speaker one time who said that Imago Dei, Latin, first of all, doesn't show up in our scriptures anywhere. Second of all, it is the language of oppressors. Latin is the language of the Roman army, which just about everywhere in scripture is labeled as the bad guys, right? And so I don't even know how we came to know the word Imago Dei. If we say Imago Dei, everyone knows what it means, but we don't know Salem Shalom. <laughs> I don't even know it either. <laughs> Salem Elohim. Um, but here it is. The point is this. That person that you really don't like, they're made in God's image. That politician that the talking heads on TV every night says is going to take down America, he or she is made in God's image, right? The coach at the team that is your rival, he or she is made in God's image. The book that I'm reading right now, he tells a story about how he was interviewing this woman in, in this town, and it was about... It was about joy, it was about flourishing, it was about having deep relationships, and she was a matriarch in this small town, and so they met at a cafe, and he was interviewing her, and he said she really presented to him as this stoic, kind of strong-willed person, and very proper, and, and maybe even a little defensive. And then someone came into the cafe that was a mutual friend but had known her for very long. And when he came in, his smile was just all over his face. And he ran in and he hugged her and, and he said, this woman's presentation changed completely. They began laughing and hugging and talking about old times. And she was a different person in that moment. And his point is, when we see God's image reflected to us in other people's eyes, they will respond appropriately. When we treat them like an interview, they will respond appropriately. When you treat them like a child of God, they will act like a child of God right there in front of you. So the more we can do that, I think, the better, and I know how hard that is. Here's the one that's my real pet peeve, though. Every language around the world basically has a word for the second person plural pronoun. Hebrew does, Greek does, our Bible is full of it. In proper English, we do not have that word. And so if I say you, I might be talking to one person, or I might be talking to the whole church, or the whole country. But in the South, we do have a word. And this is a real pet peeve of mine. It's the word y'all. And that makes a difference, especially if you live in a culture that is hyper-autonomous, right? That is growing more and more lonely, that says the pinnacle of success is pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and riding off into the sunset all by yourself, right? If we understand that the Bible is full of y'alls and not yous, it might change our theology and our practice just a little bit. Now, I want to side note here because every time I share this, I feel, like, I feel like there's just solid gold in this idea. And if someone wants to back this and make this happen, I think it could. I think we could rewrite the Bible, y'all. I think we could rewrite it 
and, and put y'all where it's supposed to be, right? I'm not talking about changing the Bible in order to make it more palatable for me or anything like that. I'm talking about making it more original to the language. But we could go a long way with this, right? Can't you imagine the Duck Dynasty guys advertising for this, right? We put a camouflage Bible cover on it, you know? The, I mean, the possibilities are endless. I mean, think of how much money. We would just pay off all the debt in the city of Alabaster. It would be, if y'all want to do that, let me know. The point is this. There are verses in Scripture that are about us, not about me. And I'll give you a couple examples. Y'all are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, not you. Paul said, y'all work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling, not you. That's not what we've ever heard, though, right? We've always been told, you go work out your salvation with Jesus, right? It's a very personal, and it is a personal thing. I don't mean to take that away, but it's not something you work out on your own. It's something that happens in a community where people can know each other, where people can call each other out, right? Where people can lift each other up and push each other forward. These are all things that happen in community because we are not autonomous. The quote that I want to pull from Cacioppo's TED Talk is this. He said, growing up doesn't mean becoming autonomous. It means becoming dependable. And if we are relational creatures dependent on each other, then doesn't this make more sense? But you guys already do that, and I want to tell you a quick story to end. Some of y'all know that Philip Bolin is in the hospital, and I went and saw him yesterday. And uh, he's going to be there for half the week or so, and, and we had a great conversation and, and, you know, laughed and told stories and talked about medical stuff and things like that. And then at the end, I, I just asked them, you know, as I try to do most times, are, are the kids taken care of? Do y'all need meals? Things like that. Is there anything that the church can do for you? And lo and behold, it's all already done. I think they just went into the hospital yesterday, maybe Friday night, and they already have uh, people lined up bringing meals every night. They already have someone taking care of the kids. And I don't know which of you did that, but I love that all of that happened without going through me. In fact, I didn't even know about it. This is the church being the church, y'all. That is what this is. And I'm telling y'all, we are sitting on a gold mine, and I'm not talking about the y'all Bible. I'm talking about the need in this community and our structure already set up to meet it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We thank you for the people in our lives who have lifted us up, who have called us out, who have pushed us forward, who know us deep down in our hearts. And I ask that you help us be the same for our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.